This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name is Owen. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And so if we've not met before, I'd love to meet you afterwards. So do grab me in the courtyard. We'd love to have a chat. Um, last week, uh, the staff team and I, there was probably about 50, 15 of us there, gathered together to worship together last Monday evening. And that's the first time we've done that in 18 months. And honestly, I looked around the room and I, I just saw them like survivors coming out of a flood or something, you know? Like, you know, you see these TV pictures like you might see on the screen in a moment of, of people kind of with their stuff on their back, kind of disheveled, covered in dirt, and the floodwaters receding them around them, and the survivors walking out of what was a disaster. And uh, honestly, it felt like that. It felt like, my goodness, that, that we've kind of emerged from an 18-month disaster, uh, a, play, a time when we've just been separated from one another, isolated from one another. We've been in a place of uh, real pain, actually, as a community, as a nation. And um, watching these people for whom I have so much affection and love um, just emerging from this period of time was really moving to me. And uh, as I look around the room, I feel the same about you guys. I haven't seen some of you face-to-face in 12, 18 months. It's been painful. It's been hard. And we're starting to emerge from it, thankfully. And it looks like the storm clouds are behind us and the sunshine is in front of us, hopefully. And we're moving into that now. And we, we as a nation, as a world, have got the opportunity to create a new future. But you know, um, we're not out of the woods necessarily. Um, uh, we will see what happens in the next six months. But I wonder whether we might look back on this time like my grandparents' generation looked back on World War II as a, a period of time that was so long and so radically different from the normal that it forever changed who they were. And maybe I mean, even now you know that this lockdown, this pandemic, has changed who you are. That you've come out of it a different person. You think differently. You are looking at the world differently. I think although um, some of us have experienced trauma and tragedy of seeing loved ones die from the coronavirus. Others have had to endure the anxiety and hardship of unemployment, loss of income, changed life circumstances. Most of us, in fact all of us, will have been affected by the loss of freedom. The loss of freedom uh, that we've gone through in the last 18 months. And uh, that things like the freedom to meet and hug our friends. The freedom to go to the pub. The freedom to gather and have a party. The freedom to eat together the freedom to work in our offices, the freedom to go to the gym, the freedom to go to the shops without a face mask on, the freedom to travel to other countries, to travel to other parts of the UK, heck, to travel outside our own home, remember that? When we couldn't even leave our own homes but for, uh, you know, an hour of exercise and perhaps a pop to the supermarket. The loss of freedom has had a big impact on us and perhaps, perhaps, we can empathise a little bit with the way Afghan women might be feeling now that the Taliban have taken control of Afghanistan. Perhaps we have more empathy for those in the world that don't enjoy the same freedoms that we have. Girls who will be unable to go to school, women who will be able to work as they wish, the women who will be unable to leave the home without a male relative accompanying them. And for what reason? Other than the Taliban's male fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. Just another example of men using violence and religious power to control other people, like they've done for centuries. And our outrage and our disgust at what is going on in Afghanistan is not just limited to Afghanistan, of course. Some people would argue that we've just witnessed four years 
of Donald Trump doing something similar in the USA. The idea that Trump, Trump was a Christian and a poster boy for the evangelical church, has led to a sharp decline in young Americans being involved at all in church. And I'm not talking about people that don't do church, I'm talking about Christians who are leaving the church, who are saying, if Trump's a Christian, I can't be a Christian. You know, I don't know about you, but if Trump does identify as a Christian, I struggle to describe myself as a Christian. You know, I, I've, for many years, some of you may know this, but for many years, I've, I've actually declined to identify as a Christian. Partly because there's too many things attached to what it means to be a Christian that I don't identify with. Now, don't worry, I continue to have a profound spiritual connection to Jesus. But the more I discover about Jesus, the more I realize that God is in the weak rather than the strong, that God is in the mystery rather than the certainty. And right now, a question that I'm asking myself is, what does it look like to lead from a place of weakness? Because when we think about the gospel of Jesus, the image that is on our, seared into our minds is that of a man hanging on a Roman cross. And if that's not a position of weakness, I don't know what is. So how do we identify as Christians when the person who we worship, the image that we have of him is him dying on a cross? vulnerable and weak. Now I know that I'm not alone in this um, because there's many people who have called themselves Christians all their lives but are now really asking themselves if they really are Christians. They're asking themselves whether they really do believe in God and um, they're, they're saying things like if Trump is a Christian then I'm not sure that I am. You know the Taliban's use of religion to justify violence and suppression of human rights looks a bit like some of the stuff we read in the Old Testament. The Taliban reminds us that some Christians have used and continue to use the Bible to limit the human rights of gay people. Some Christians have used and continue to use the Bible to stop women reaching their full potential. Some Christians have used and even now use the Bible to justify slavery and racism. And for frankly many of us, this is just overwhelming and confusing and utterly distressing. Now when you combine that and that kind of world that we're living in now, with the COVID crisis, when we've had time to reflect and to ask ourselves what's important in life. Even coming to church on a Sunday has been prevented. We've actually started to ask ourselves, what does it mean to actually be a Christian? What does it feel like? What am I actually believing in? And I want to say to you, if you are in that place at the moment, if you are in that place or you, someone you love is in that place at the moment, then I want to reassure you that what you're going through is completely normal completely normal to question your faith and your beliefs, especially when we've been through such an event as we have in the last 18 months. Now, the problem with, uh, with this process is that some of us feel like embarrassed, ashamed, and fearful to even be asking questions about who is God? Do I believe in God? You know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Am I even a Christian? You, you know, people aren't talking to one another about it. And I, I know this because I've talked to lots of people uh, recently, probably in the last six months, more people than I can remember, who are saying these questions to me. And honestly, they're, at, they're trying to tell me this in confidence because they're worried, they're fearful, they're embarrassed, they're ashamed. They're not sure. It, it undermines their sense of identity because they've always identified as a Christian. So what does it mean? Those are the sorts of questions that lots of people are asking. And one of the reasons is because... Since the Reformation, and I'm talking the last 400 years, 
we've got a, developed a culture of authority in the evangelical church, in the reformed church, such that anyone that questions that authority feels like a heretic. And somehow we kind of know in our minds that at some point in the, Christians, the history of the Christian church in Britain and in Western Europe, we used to kill people who were heretics, to shut them up, to control them. And so we end up feeling, there's something wrong about this, we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and we've got to believe what we've been told. But you know what I want to say to you today is that the church that we lead here is not that kind of church. We are not that kind of church. We are not going to create a culture, and if we have, we're going to put it right. If someone that you care about or you have decided that you're not sure you want to believe in God anymore, I want to respect you and respect your honesty, and I'm glad that you're thinking about this stuff because it is a normal part of life. And it's a normal part of our maturity and growth as human beings. I've been there myself. That is not to say that I'm going to patronisingly say to you that this is just a phase that you're going through and you're going to come back to where you started in a short while. You're not. You are never going to go back to where you started. You're going to end up in a different place. When we question whether we believe in God or not, um, and, and let me say this to you, we all will at some point in life question whether we believe in God or not, if you haven't already, we never end up back where we started. When we decide that we don't believe in God, we are really going through a revolution of belief and identity. We're allowing our simplistic, fundamentalist identity and belief, uh, which often we've unquestioned since childhood, to be shaped by the reality of our experiences of life and our observations of life. For many people, the, the pandemic, the lockdown, and everything that's gone on has actually caused us to reevaluate what we believe. That is normal and healthy and right. And, uh, and, and if, if we don't do that, we tend to become stunted, to be quite frank, in our view of the world. It's important that we get together and we talk about this and we start to handle the tension of what you might think of simplistic beliefs with the reality of life. I want you to know that as far as I'm concerned, this is completely normal and very healthy. But... Honestly, it doesn't feel like it, does it? Partly because you've never heard a church pastor say that before. Isn't that right? Even me saying this to you, there may be some anxiety just in me that some of you might go, oh, you're a heretic. So people, we need to talk about this. We need to understand that this is a normal part of psychological development and, and, and life. And, and, but I, I would go even further than that. I would say that it is actually getting back to the roots of who we are as people who focus on Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. And if you know anything about the Jews, questioning their faith, questioning their identity, questioning their history, questioning their stories that they believe in was part of their tradition. Jesus was like this. He was always questioning it. That's why he got into lots of debates with other Pharisees. That was normal. That's how Jews debate faith and identity. And even now, if you talk to a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, you will know that this is part of what they value. It is valuable, it is essential to their faith that they debate and they discuss it. Sadly, this tradition has not found its way into our modern day church. Somewhere along the line, it has been suppressed. Now, when I read the letters from Paul, the Apostle, I see Paul doing the same. Of course, Paul was a Jew, just like Jesus, and he continues this tradition, this Jewish tradition of questioning. And we can see from his letters that he is not shy of an argument. Am I right? 
if you've listened to any of the box set series that I've done on Paul, um, you will know that Paul is full of questions and provokes anger and frustration and he, he will always, always promote an argument. Why? Because it was part of their tradition as a Jew to do that. Um, so he argues passionately with other Jewish Pharisees that every single human being is created equal. You know what? The reality is, is that Paul's teaching on the equality of human beings is the wellspring of what we call human rights. It, what we value as the rights of every individual comes from Paul's teaching. Romans 3, 24. He says, There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. Gentile was the word that Jews called people that weren't Jews, uh, yeah, that weren't Jews basically. So anyone that wasn't a Jew was Gentile, according to the Jews. And somehow they were second-class citizens with God. And Paul is causing a storm because he is saying that God doesn't have favourites. He treats everyone equally, whether they're Jew or Gentile. In Romans 4, Paul emphasises this point by referring to Abraham, who was considered to be the ancestor of the great Jewish faith. He says this in Romans 4, 9, 11. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, which is shorthand for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, shorthand for Gentiles? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. So under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? He answers his own question. It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith whilst he was still uncircumcised. You know, Jesus had so transformed Paul's perspective that he was questioning one of the fundamental principles of Judaism, that only those who were circumcised were right with God. I can't say what Paul would have said in response to that, because some of you would be upset with me swearing. (laughs) But essentially he says, in more extreme terms, that that's a load of rubbish. All right? And, and, and often in the Christian church, we dress up what Paul was like. Paul was aggressive, he was angry, and he definitely was passionate. And uh, his assertions were so controversial that repeatedly the Jews tried to kill him. How many times did Paul say he'd been beaten up, tortured, and escaped death on several occasions? That's because the Jews branded him, or some Jews branded him a heretic. Paul goes even further than that, though. He doesn't just talk about Jew or Gentile. He, he actually questions the law of Moses. Now, to do this, like, in a Christian context, you'd be like, whoa, hang on a minute, this is heresy. What are you talking about? But it's Paul talking here, and he's debating. This is a normal part of their tradition. Paul engaged in, in debates with other Jews about the nature of faith and the nature of the law. This was completely normal. And uh, he reaches back to the figure of Adam, And some would describe Adam as a mythical figure because even for the Jews, Adam was a mythical figure who predates Abraham and was most likely described by Moses in his writings. So Paul takes the story of Adam and says that even before Moses codified the law, and the Jews call it the Torah, we tend to think of it as things like the Ten Commandments, which is a summary version of part of the law. He says before Moses wrote the law, he says sin was already in the world. Romans 5, 13 and 14. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of one to come. 
What Moses is saying there is that even before the law was given, sin was part of the world that we lived in. From Adam to Moses, when before Moses gave the law, sin was in the world. Now the word that he uses for sin here, Paul, is hamartia. Wonderful word. Um, it actually is a Greek word that was used by Greek playwrights to describe a certain type of hero. Okay, uh, Some of you may not be that familiar with Greek um, plays, and some of you may actually. Um, I'm certainly not. I'm not. In, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> so, but there, there, there's one called um, Oedipus uh, by uh, the Greek playwright, um, um, I can't even pronounce his name, Sophocles. Soph- how do you say that? Sophocles. And um, uh, he's the king of Thebes, and he's, he unwittingly kills his father and marries his mother. Brilliant. I mean, it's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate. All right. It's, uh, I mean, you know, it's the sort of thing you're going to see on Netflix for sure. Um, essentially, essentially, what uh, uh, is happening here is Oedipus is considered to be um, in possession of an inherent tragic flaw. Okay. Such that he kills his father and marries his mother. And that word, tragic flaw, is homotia in Greece. Greek. And so what happens is, is that Paul takes a Greek word, hamartia, which means tragic flaw, and uses it to describe the tragic flaw in Adam before Moses. But his Jewish readers would have been really surprised by this. He would have said, hang on, Paul, if that's true, what are you talking about? What's the point of the law of Moses if hamartia still exists? Well, Paul replies in Romans 5.20, the law, that is the law of Moses, was brought in so that the trespass, the sin, might increase. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean that the law was brought in so the trespass might increase? Well, scholars think that Paul is meaning here that the law reveals the presence of Hamatia. The law reveals this tragic flaw within a, a, a specific context. The law effectively turns this tragic flaw into a crime. Let me give you an example. I live in Flaxbourton, which is, and the village between here and Flaxbourton is Long Ashton. Now, if I drove my car through Long Ashton at 70 miles an hour, then that would be demonstrating a tragic flaw in me. That is, that I don't really care about hitting someone, um, a child running out in, in the road or, or something like that, because it's 20 miles an hour right through that village. All right, that's a tragic flaw in me. Now, if, uh, as there is, there is a speed limit, okay? The law says that I cannot do that. And so therefore, not, not only is that tragic flaw present in me, because I'm not caring about other people, it also becomes illegal because of the law. If there was no law, it would not cease to be a tragic flaw. It may not be illegal because there's no law, but it would still be a tragic flaw. Now, that tragic flaw would be different if the context was different. So if I drove at 70 miles an hour on a racetrack, frankly, that would be slow. Um, but if there was a racetrack with crash barriers either side and I was only racing against myself and other people who were also, we agreed we would also race and we would go to the maximum speed of our cars, then that would not necessarily be a tragic flaw and it certainly wouldn't be illegal. The law turns a tragic flaw into a trespass, if you like, a sin. Now, Paul was questioning, effectively, the validity of the ancient laws of Moses. And frankly... They are laws that you would also question. So laws about genital mutilation, like dietary laws about what you can eat and what you can't eat, or employment laws about who can work and who can't work. Laws that perhaps actually cause oppression and injustice. And Paul was saying those relevant laws are not relevant anymore because they don't fit the context. You know, 
The Mosaic law, the law that Moses gave, was specific to the context in which he lived. So that's why you won't find in the Ten Commandments any laws about speeding in your car. Because there was no cars. All right? But you will find in the Mosaic law laws about camels. All right? About killing a camel. Um, in Leviticus 11, you're not allowed to eat a camel. Why? Because it was the prime mode of transport. So you don't want to eat your prime mode of transport, particularly when you're traveling through a desert with a few million people and everything that goes with a few million people. So the law of Moses was contextual. It was contextual to the time in which it was written. And Paul is arguing that if laws are meant to reveal, define, and effectively control hamartia, which is the tragic flaw, then of course it's necessary to review those laws and check that they're fit for purpose. Now in case you're thinking I'm a heretic, this is what Paul was doing. Paul was saying it is not necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised. It is not necessary for them to obey the dietary laws and the employment laws and all the other non-consequential laws that are not in the context in which they're needed. So Paul was saying this, not me. In our democratic society, we elect MPs uh, to Parliament to, do, to make laws on our behalf. And MPs create laws to respond to new expressions of hamartia and how they impact on other people. And they change laws that are judged to be irrelevant or unjust. And that's simply what Paul is doing here. He was challenging the religious authoritarianism of the male Jewish leaders who were using those laws to control people. And he exemplifies this by contrasting Jesus with Adam. He says in Romans, 18, uh, sorry, Romans 5, 18 and 19, and I've taken the message translation here. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person, Adam, did it wrong and got us in trouble with sin and death, another person, Jesus, did it right and got us out of it. But more than that, just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. Paul brilliantly contrasts Adam and Jesus. Just as all humanity share Adam's tragic flaw that made them outsiders with God, so all humanity shares Jesus' glorious obedience that makes them insiders with God. And the word here in Romans 5 is uh, the Greek word here for the many, for the many, that is, everyone, is hoi polloi. I love that phrase, hoi polloi. Now, hoi polloi is used in the English language to describe all the kind of people like me, the kind of uh, the rough and ready, not the aristocracy, not the ruling class. The ruling class is used to describe that about everyone else, the hoi polloi, the hoi polloi. In this context, though, hoi polloi just means everyone. It means the rulers and, and the commoners. It means everyone. And what Paul is saying is that, is that Jesus made everyone right with God. I love that. Paul's insistence is that all people are created equal in the, in, in the image of God. And, and you know what? This is where we get our human rights legislation from. Because the teachings of Jesus, the values of Jesus, permeate our society in the West more than we ever believe. More than we ever know. Because we don't understand how it's moved through history. And so what we consider to be the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights actually comes from the teaching of Paul. And that's from the teachings of Jesus. You know, viewing Paul, um, I just want to ponder, just pause on this for a moment. Viewing Paul from such a distance of 2,000 years, it's 2,000 years of history have elapsed since Paul lived on the planet. And when we view Paul from that distance, it's a bit like when you're viewing a distant object on a hazy day. It can get a little warped, it can get a little misshaped, you can't quite see it. And I think sometimes we... We, we struggle to appreciate the personal crisis of faith and identity that Paul would have gone through 
to change from being someone like the Taliban and before you start throwing things at me, Paul, we know from Paul that he was a Pharisee, a zealous. He dragged people off to prison for believing the wrong things. He, he would have endorsed torture and even death for people that believe the wrong things. Just for believing the wrong things. Right, this is what Paul did before he met Jesus. That's not unlike what we see of other religious fundamentalists in the world today. And then he changes from being like that to being someone like, I don't know, Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King. What crisis of faith and identity did Paul go through to go from being someone like the Taliban to being someone like Martin Luther King? Just for a moment, just contemplate that, think about that. This man went through enormous time of questioning. We, there's a whole period of his life we don't hear about him. We, there's not, nothing written about him. Why? Because he was probably going through this enormous transformation of his worldview. Paul would have done that. Paul would have questioned his belief in God. Paul would have wondered what his identity was. And when we do that, we are walking in the footsteps of Paul. We are challenging what we've been told to believe. We're challenging the hodgepodge of cultural rules and assumptions that we've unquestionably adopted in order to become part of this club. And it's not all bad. It's just a reality. And if you are questioning that, then I'm glad you're questioning it. It's important you question it. It's part of our psychological health and emotional health and mental health to question it. It's really, really important. And the reason I make a point of saying this is because at the moment I think there's a culture in the wider Christian church that, one, it, you should be ashamed of thinking like that. Two, you should be embarrassed about thinking like that. Three, you should fear thinking like that because you might go to hell for thinking like that. And, and quite aside from that, there's the emotional disconnect that comes from being in a group of people where you think differently and you're really asking yourself the question, actually, do I belong here anymore? Because I think differently from other people and we just assume that everyone thinks differently from us. So, you know, I'm not sure I believe in God, but I look around the room and go, everyone here clearly believes in God. No one else is having the questions of doubt that I've got. No one else is grappling with the same tensions that I'm grappling with. So I'm the odd one out. So the only answer for some people is I need to leave the church. I need to disengage. And I respect that if you want to do that. I'd rather you didn't. I'd rather you didn't. I, I've... I've questioned my faith. I've gone through those times of my life uh, whilst I lead a church. I've been, I've been, in, I've been involved in leading churches for well, I've been 12 years here and, and was it 11 years in Nottingham? So 23 years I've been involved in uh, pastoral ministry. It hasn't always been easy because like you, some of you, I haven't always found it easy to find other people who are willing to talk to me about these things. I have found it worrying that other people might think badly of me that they might suggest, think that I'm not a Christian anymore, that I've lost my faith or something. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is all about engaging as a human being with what you believe and what you think and what, what life is all about. And I want us to recognise that this was a traditional Jewish process. This was normal for Jesus, it was normal for Paul, and actually it was probably normal for most of the early church. Something went wrong, and we'll explore this in the weeks and months to come in podcasts and in talks, but something went wrong which created a community where it's not okay to question, it's not okay to ask and debate and to doubt. And we don't want to lead a church like that. We want to lead a church where it is okay. In fact, it's more than okay, it's brilliant. 
and we want to encourage you to do it. Recognizing that we are all, we are all human beings with a whole penalty of emotions and, and stresses and, and strains and priorities and experiences. This is who we are. And, and if we cannot be honest about that, we, honestly, I, I, I don't think we're a community. So let us be honest with our vulnerable and be vulnerable with our, our issues and questions and doubts. You know, um, I want to encourage you to uh, connect with this more. We are going to talk more about this as the weeks and months go on. There is uh, at least one community group being established uh, for people that, um, uh, I think Chris Simmons is, is hosting it, for people that have got questions and want to talk about their, their, their honest doubts and fears and, um, you know, just attentions like about... You know, the views that you've been taught as a Christian and that not really matching up with the reality of life. There's going to be space. We're going to create space for that. We'll start with Chris's group. If it gets overwhelmed, we'll do another one. But I want you to be open and honest because uh, there, is, uh, there is no fear in love. Did you know that? Not in God's love, anyway. So I'm just going to encourage you. I just want to stand. Uh, stand with me, if you will. It's ten past eleven. Stand at home, if you're if you're with me as well, just as a physical response. Um, and and we, we, uh, let's just do that thing that Dan taught, about 14 seconds. <laughs> um, just for a minute, just be honest with yourself. I've got questions, I've got doubts. Things don't seem entirely clear to me. I'm not sure what I think about this. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. Um, I'm not sure if I believe in God. Just admit that to yourself, if that's you. Don't worry, just admit it to yourself. There you go. And if you've admitted that to yourself, um, why don't you just admit it uh, to God? I'm not sure, God, whether I believe in you. It seems such a stupid thing to say. <laughs> Talking to someone you're not sure you believe in, right? <laughs> But we do, we just say, God, sometimes we worry about, we're not sure about whether we believe in you or not. We're not sure about whether we're a Christian. We're not sure about whether we believe that God is love. We're not sure about whether a whole million questions. I would just admit that to you. We're not sure. We have our doubts, God. But we also know that there's a freedom to express that. Because there's perfect freedom in your love. And if love is at the centre of our universe, if the love is at the centre of our existence, there is freedom in love. Thank you for the rich Jewish heritage that we have, that we get to ask questions without fear, without anxiety. We can be honest, we can be joyful, we can celebrate uh, the, the idiosyncrasies of life, the weird things that don't seem to fit together, the, the inconsistencies of life, I should say. Um, thank you that we have a rich tradition that comes from you, Jesus, that is part of your heritage, Jesus, as a Jew. And thank you uh, for Paul uh, for enabling us to, to reflect on this in his letters. Um, thank you so much that we get to be and do... Uh, do this with one another and to ask questions with one another without any fear of judgment or embarrassment or shame. Knowing this is what it means to be a human being, to be curious and to follow our curiosity and to ask questions 
and to seek answers. We're made in the image of God. So the Bible says, and we, 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 we engage with that, believing that this is part of our identity and part of who we are.